Welcome to the first episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm going to tell you that I love you. I'm Liberty Vittert, and today with my co-host, Shaoli Meng, we are looking at the data of love. You'll get tired of my voice, that's how much I'm going to tell you that I missed you. Our guests, John and Julie Gottman, are relationship experts. If you are married, they can tell you the likelihood that your relationship will last. And if this Valentine's Day you are still in search of love, they can tell you how to determine who might make a great partner. Find out the secrets of long-term successful relationships and why it's hard to pick a partner just from an online profile. How they connect with one another, talk with one another, deal with conflict together, and so on. That's really what predicts whether the relationship will be successful or not. And guys, we've got some useful advice for you to keep your love life on fire. I'm going to let everyone know about my We started the interview asking how their research came about. So this all began in 1972 when I had a laboratory with my colleague, Robert Levinson, who's a psychology professor at UC Berkeley now. We started a lab where we brought couples in just to talk about how their day went after they'd been apart for eight hours. And we collected physiological data from them synchronized to the video time code. So we could measure how fast their heart was beating, how fast their blood was flowing, how much they were sweating from the palms of their hands, how much they were jiggling around, other measures like that. And then they just talked about how their day went for 15 minutes. Then we interviewed them about an area of conflict they had in their relationship and asked them to try to resolve their top conflict in 15 minutes. And then they also talked about a positive topic and After they were done, we showed them their videotape and they basically rated every second of the tape to tell us what they were feeling from very negatively to very positively. And they just used this dial that was also synchronized to the video time code. And again, we collected physiology while they were doing the rating. And in that initial study back in the 1970s, we had a computer that synchronized the video time code to the physiology. And then we scored every second of their interaction for what emotions they were expressing, whether it was anger, we looked at their faces, we looked at what they were saying, their voices, and then coded their behavior. So we got a a sense for their perception of what they were feeling, their external behavior, all synchronized to the physiology. And in that initial study, we sent them home. We didn't have any idea of how to help anybody. And then years later, we recontacted them, two years later in that study. And it turned out we could predict the change in their happiness or whether they stayed together or broke apart in the two-year period with over 90% accuracy. And that was a big surprise to us. So we kept doing that study. Bob and I kept doing that study over and over again for the next 25 years. And we studied gay and lesbian couples couples at different stages of the lifespan, from couples who were dating and in couples who were newlyweds in, in the lab that Julie and I created. In Seattle, we created an apartment laboratory where couples just spent 24 hours, and these were 130 newlywed couples right after their wedding, we saw them. 
for 24 hours, just the cameras running, again, getting physiology, again, getting their idea of what they felt, interviewing them about their relationship, developing questionnaires uh, to look at strengths and challenges in their relationship. And we kept finding that we could really predict with over 90% accuracy, 94% is our, is our top predictive ability, whether they would break up, uh, how happy they would be if they stayed together. And then 25 years ago, Julie and I decided to collaborate and see whether, you know, she was a clinical psychologist who was in the process of helping people, all kinds of people. And we put our two experiences together, me as a as an experimenter and measuring things, and her as a clinician really helping people. Could we use these predictions to create a therapy that could prevent disaster or turn a troubled relationship into a successful relationship? And in the past 25 years, we've done quite a bit of research that shows that indeed we can prevent disaster and we can actually have a therapy that changes everything. All of this therapy and all these principles are really not based on our own knowledge. They're based on data. And data is what drives this. And I like to say that keeping track of my hypotheses, I'm wrong 60% of the time. That's a pretty good, actually. <laughs> I, I, I would have been wrong 80% of the time. But, uh, you know, being a data scientist, or more precisely being a statistician, I can't help but to ask you, when you say the model can predict, first, uh, I want to know what kind of model you were building. I assume there are some kind of regression or logistic regression or some kind of model being built. Exactly. What was the model you were using? Well, um, part of what we needed to do was create some idea of what was the theoretical basis for the prediction. So mm -hmm. what we initially started off was just a very simple idea that the balance of positive to negative emotion was very important. Because we discovered that even during conflict, a good relationship has five times as much positive affect as negative affect, even when they're disagreeing. Mm -hmm. So there's much more acknowledgement, much more understanding, people nodding their heads and saying, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, good point, uh, as opposed to saying, no, you're wrong. So that ratio of positive to negative turned out to be very, very important. And later, uh, James Murray and I, and James Murray is a mathematical biologist, and we developed actual uh, mathematical equations, differential equations, that use this idea of positive to negative ratio to see how people influenced one another and how they influenced themselves over time. So using these parameters that we came up with, which is, you know, how negative does it have to be before somebody starts trying to repair and make it better? And how effective is the repair? How do they influence one another with positive emotions, like kindness and generosity, and really noticing what their partner needs and wants? I see what you mean. I think you uh, describe a lot of uh, potential important predictors and uh, based on uh, your, uh, your expertise. And again, that from more a kind of a statistical perspective that uh, what was the relationship between these predictors and your outcome? What was the, your end point? Is the, uh, the marriage you were dissolved or how do you measure those things? We really had two endpoints. One was 
would they divorce or not? Would they break up if they weren't married? And of course, we were doing the research with gay and lesbian couples before the uh, Supreme Court made it legal for gay and lesbian couples to marry. So we're looking at, do they break up or not? But also, if they stay together, how happy are they? So we wanted to predict not only whether the, the relationship was stable, but how happy was it? And how did it change in happiness over time? So we had those dual criteria. And luckily, measuring relationship happiness is something that can be done very reliably and had been developed by sociologists starting in 1937 with a study that Lewis Terman did, same guy who developed the IQ test, also studied you know, emotional intelligence as well. Mm-hmm. And so we had those two criteria, stability and happiness. We actually did that initial study seven times with very different samples, including gay and lesbian couples, including a study to follow an initial sample of two kinds of couples, couples who were in their 40s and couples in their 60s. And they were seen at four different waves, separated by six years, and then one separated by two years, following these couples so that the couples in their 40s would eventually be in their 60s. And we could compare them to the initial group that started in their 60s. So in, in these six replications, all the predictions really held. And we found, in fact, that not only could we predict if a couple would stay together or not, but when they would divorce. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, if we look at newlyweds, uh, 17 of them divorced out of 130 in a six-year period. So it's kind of like we're predicting, uh, you know, it's like we have 130 balls in an urn and 17 of them are red. Those are the ones who divorce. And we're using our variables to, to select, try to select those red balls. And we're right. over 90% accurate in selecting the ones who will divorce using the same variable, study after study. So it's 17 out of 130 couples divorce in the first six years? Right. When we see this sort of 50% of Americans get divorced. That's a 40-year estimate of divorce rate. Now, even those estimates are, they're hard to get because when, when sociologists actually do this, they're not taking a group of couples, like 100,000 couples, and following them over a 40-year period. What they're doing is they're looking at the marriage rate and the divorce rate. So they're not the same people. <laughs> so it's not matching that this, you know, couple A, you know, couple Joe and Tony got right. married and then couple Joe and Tony got divorced. It's just the aggregate right. number of marriages versus divorces. Right. Got it. That's so right. where would be some of the tricky, you know, is, is it correct to say that 50% of people get divorced in America? Or what would be sort of some of the confusing data behind that that would make those numbers look different? Well, very few of these studies on divorce rate are longitudinal like ours where we we're following the same sample over time. But when people do that, more or less, it seems like the divorce rate, which used to be around 60-something percent, and now is a little under 50 percent, seems to fit the longitudinal data. So it's one thing that once people are already a couple, to work with them and to sort of to get them going. But you know, one of the things that we see all the time with people is trying to figure out who they'll be compatible with before they're even with the person. So are there predictors that explain the relationship between who will be a good match to begin with rather than the future match, you know, like an eHarmony or one of these things? Yeah. Let me just say one thing. 
and Julie, Julie will take it. That's the place where our science really is the weakest. Right. So, you know, first of all, what we have found is that compatibility has nothing to do with people coming together. In fact, the less compatible they are genetically, the more they're attracted to each other. Have you heard of the Wedekind t-shirt study? Yeah, but could you explain it? I think it'd be really good for our listeners to hear it. Yes. So um, a series of men wore t-shirts for a long enough time for the t-shirts to absorb uh, some of the fragrant, shall we say, of the person wearing it. Then those t-shirts were given to a group of women and the women were allowed to choose which of the t-shirts and the smells associated with that t-shirt were the ones they were most attracted to. And then genetics were tested in both the male and female. And what was found is that the genetics of the male the woman was attracted to were uh, much more different than similar to the woman. So a lot of people think that compatibility is very important in relationships being successful, but that is a myth. So either opposites attract, which is kind of a similar hypothesis in the opposite direction, is wrong, that's a myth, and similarities create attraction, that's also a myth. So it's really quite arbitrary who's attracted to whom and who will succeed together. What's more important are the dynamics in how they connect with one another, talk with one another, express their needs together, deal with conflict together, and so on. That's really what predicts whether the relationship will be successful or not. So that would mean that, you know, you won't really be able to understand the relationship between or the success of a relationship between two people before they've met. They have right. you have to understand right. what's happening when they're together. Yes. So this idea that, you know, I'm gonna find somebody who also likes to rock climb <laughs> or whatever. I don't right. like to rock climb, but That's whatever. Exactly. <laughs> that it's I hate rock climbing. But that that and also that if someone hates rock climbing like I do, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna be compatible. That we don't really understand these things. Yeah, let me say this, Liberty. So the interaction variables, you know, actually coding how people are when they are together. What's more important is how they treat each other when they're both rock climbing. <laughs> you know, and if they're nice to one another when they're rock climbing, then that predicts the relationship's going to work. But if they're criticizing one another <laughs> while they're rock climbing, if and one of them is saying, you idiot, that's not the way you do this, you know, you know, then the relationship's not going to work. So even in the beginning of relationships, it appears that it's not these traits that have to match, but the way they interact with one another. And the nicer they are to one another, the kinder, the more generous they are, the more likely that relationship is going to progress. You know, once you've decided that someone's marriage isn't going to work, you know, like that they are unhappy, is it lights out? You know, them's the breaks? Does the data show that there is a way to save a marriage? Or is it just, you know, time to call the lawyer? What we did uh, 25 years ago after creating our theory is to create interventions that taught couples how to interact in the ways that the successful couples did who had very good marriages. Then in that either prevention or intervention, if couples were able to learn those methods that 
mimicked what successful couples did, they could change their relationships over time to much happier, more successful relationships. So you have to keep in mind that all of John's original studies were with couples where there was no intervention. Thus, you know, following them over periods of years without intervention, they deteriorated. Right. But what we've also seen in our research is that when you apply the interventions or prevention methods, they actually can really change the trajectory of their relationship mm -hmm. into something that is much more optimistic and positive. What would be some examples of what couples, uh, you know, to, to really sort of have this sustainable marriage that you saw? So when a couple is talking about a conflict, uh, let me give you a good example. Um, we had a couple come in who he had inherited a lot of money from his uncle. They were trying to decide what to do with the money. They had a big conflict. She wanted to spend uh, money. That was more of her philosophy. And his was to save it all. So they had to figure out what they were going to do with that money together. The healthy things that they did is that, first of all, they were quiet rather than talking over each other and listened to each other's point of view about what should be done with the money. Then they asked questions about why was it important to spend that money rather than save that money. And then uh, what was very crucial and important is that he accepted influence from her. So he listened to her, he understood what she was trying to say, he accepted influence that, yeah, it would be okay to spend a little bit of the money, didn't have to all be saved, and that wasn't his original position. So he really had moved as he listened to her. Then he uh, said, okay, name a percentage. Then she said something, because she had accepted influence from him, like 3%. And he said, fine. So they were able to compromise, but only because they talked it through in a respectful manner. They did not criticize or blame the other person. They described their own point of view and their own feelings. And one of the big errors that couples make when they're conflicting is they blame the other person, they criticize the other person, mm -hmm. they may express contempt towards the other person, and they are very defensive about their own position. So that fails, that doesn't work. In terms of friendship, best examples are what we saw in the apartment lab and how people respond to bids for connection. So I'll give you an example. A bid for connection Maybe calling out somebody's name, looking out the window at the same time and saying, hey, look at that beautiful boat. Okay, well, there's three options to responding to that. One is to ignore the person and not say anything at all. We call that turning away. Or to turn against the person and say, would you stop interrupting me? I'm trying to read, right? Or the third response, which would be, oh, and going over to the window and saying, huh, that's nice, period. <laughs> Doesn't take much. It's a little tiny thing, little tiny that's kind turning of toward. bolt. That's turning toward. And what we saw as we followed a sample of couples who went through our apartment lab was that the successful couples down the road turned towards each other's bids for connection 86% of the time. And the people who 
did not do well over the course of time turned towards each other's bids about 33% of the time. So there's a huge difference. But look at how easy the intervention is there. You know, basically, all you have to do is to suggest to a listener uh, for a bid for connection, coach that person to just say, huh, <laughs> that's enough. Just a little thing between that and, of course, larger bids for connection, which are expressing needs and really responding to those needs affirmatively. So that's that, what friend, That's what creates friendship. That's one of the things. And that's a pretty big initial difference, 33% turning toward versus 86%. The couples who are not going to be successful, and that she's referring to our newlywed study, are very different even a couple of months after the wedding. They're already the seeds for their success or destruction there initially. And we can predict how people go through the transition to becoming parents from that initial talking to one another in the apartment lab, when they eventually become pregnant, how they will interact with their babies. From the very beginning, those differences are quite dramatic. And they're, they're not that hard to change, as Julie's pointing out. It's just, even during non-conflict, it's just kind of noticing what your partner wants. Is there a case where you find that the data showed something really surprising? That there's something that couples think they're doing the right thing, but really the data shows that that's not what you should be doing? Yeah, here's one. So in uh, stress-reducing conversations, when one person brings up a problem that is stressful to them that is outside the relationship, perhaps something they're dealing with at work or with a neighbor or something like that, the other person uh, may respond by suggesting a solution to the problem. And what we've learned is that that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. That does not help. It shuts down the speaker from really describing at a deeper level what's going on for them and why it is so upsetting for them. It can also leave them feeling condescended to as if uh, the person offering the solution is saying, you're not smart enough to think of the solution yourself, so let me give it to you, right? So what we learned is that what works best uh, to help somebody relieve their stress are four different things. One, ask questions first to understand particularly what their feelings are about. So you can ask questions like, what's the most upsetting part about this for you? Or what's your worst case scenario here? Two, you need to empathize with your partner's emotions. Most people, when they're stressed, here's the, the trick of it. They need to feel less alone with the stress. They, they can think of a solution sometimes if they think about it a while, but they want to feel less alone. What's the best way to feel less alone? To feel like that person really understands the heart and soul of where you're coming from. So empathizing with that person's emotions is very powerful as a connector and a stress reliever. Third, don't side with the enemy. A lot of people make the mistake of, well, maybe they were just having a bad day and that's why they chewed you out in front of 150 people in the office. <laughs> well, 
how's the other person going to feel? You're, you're trying to, you know, understand my boss instead of me, you know, go away. So that doesn't work. So don't side with the enemy, side with your partner, be an ally. And fourth, touch, non-erotic touch, if you're both open to it, is an incredible stress reliever. A Florida researcher named Tiffany Fields has done you know, three decades of research on the power of touch to relieve anxiety and depression. And it's very powerful. We've seen it in our own work too. Yeah, what surprised me was that men's accept the influence from women and not the other way around was a great predictor of relationships working. And accept the influence is not very hard to do. It's just saying things like, interesting. <laughs> Good point. Good point. You know, tell me more. <laughs> so when men do that, rather than immediately say, no, you're wrong, and they just kind of consider and look for common ground, that's a powerful predictor of heterosexual relationships working really well. I know some men that could hear that. I, I know a couple. I know. I feel like I just got this therapy session in, you know, five minutes with data-backed Thoughts. I have to uh, just say one more thing that's surprising and wonderful, and that is that men who vacuum get more sex. <laughs> okay. I think all our listeners need to hear Isn't that. that Isn't that great? I love it. That's why I do a lot of vacuuming. <laughs> this needs to be a public service announcement. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much. I think uh, this is a perfect time for us to thank you for uh, not only uh, giving us the insights about your studies, but most importantly, I think I can say this on behalf of all the uh, audience that for all the free therapy, <laughs> all the free advice, and uh, I do hope that everyone start to vacuum more. Oh, so. thank you so thank much. Thank you all. It's been a real pleasure, you guys. Well, men, vacuum away. I think this is about as happy of an ending as we're going to get on this episode. So from me, Liberty Vittert, and my co-host, Shali Meng, thanks so much for listening.